Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. Okay, so we are, we are going to finish Hebrews 10 today. And what's amazing when you look at where we've been through the book of Hebrews, starting all the way back to chapter one, all the way up until where we left off at chapter 10, verse 18, the Lord, it's, it's very heavy theological kind of stuff. And about Jesus as our high priest, about how he's a better conqueror than Joshua, a better deliverer than Moses. He, he is superior to the angels, you know, all this kind of stuff. And it's getting there. And then from 10 verse 19 on, it's a very practical kind of how do you, so what does all this mean in the life of a believer? What does it mean? And so that's what we're picking up today. Now scattered throughout that, it's got five warnings to the believer and today we're going to dive into the fourth of those five warnings that the whole book is structured around. And so as we're continuing to go through this, don't forget that it is the anointing that we have that's going to teach us everything out of the book of Hebrews, everything. This book is only for the believer. It's just for the believer. It's not for the unbeliever. There's nowhere in here that even tells you how to get saved. That's, it. That's in Romans and other parts in the Bible. It's what do you do afterwards, after you get saved. So what we're going to do, I, I want to open us up in prayer real quick to get started uh, because I'm, I'm trying to make that a habit every week now before we get going. But let's solicit the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us this. We, before you go into the Word of God, you always want to do it with prayer, always. Even when you're on your own, do it with prayer and get into it. Because it's, again, it's a spiritual exercise, not a logical one. So Lord, we just lift you up and we lift up our praise to you and we ask that your Holy Spirit would fill this place and that you would speak to us. God, it's by your anointing that we can learn everything and that we can have confidence as we see the day approaching and the appearance of our King from 1 John 2.27 and 28. And we cling to the promise that you will not only teach us, but that you will lead us and guide us and never forsake us. And so God, as we see the day approaching, we pray that Lord, you would embolden each one of us to stand firm on the word of God and to walk forward by your spirit and your spirit alone. Not what the world would have us do, but what you would have us do as our king. And we love you, and we give you praise for it in advance, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, it's, it, remember, 1 John 2, 27 and 28, that's how we, we foster, strengthen, and grow an, an unashamed bride for Jesus' return. It's that, that mission statement that Jesus wrote for the new city. That's how it is. So when you look at the outline of where we are, we're in this section right here of a new and better priestly covenant And remember, Jesus, his sacrifice was offered once and for all. It was superior. It provides better promises. 
and it opens a sanctuary for all. It's an open house, an open call. And we're going to get in next week as we start chapter 11, that the true and better response because of all of this is faith. And chapter 11 is, is almost like a hallmark of the word of God, of the New Testament, right there in the center of faith. And what is faith all about? It's a fantastic chapter that recounts a lot of the Old Testament. So from the beginning of Hebrews all the way through chapter 10, verse 18, the Holy Spirit was dealing with a lot of very heavy theological issues. If you remember, like we talked about, Jesus' priesthood after the order of Melchizedek, he's superior to the angels. There's not a single angel that God said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So he was, he was dealing with the superiority of Jesus to all three pillars of Judaism. The law, because he, Jesus fulfilled the law, the angels, and the Levitical priesthood. So the Melchizedekian priesthood was a type or a foreshadowing, and the, and the Lord spent a lot of time about Melchizedek as a high priest and what that means for us since Jesus is after that order. So Jesus, as our high priest, remember he disannulled the law. He ushered in a priesthood superior to that of Levi. And remember the whole argument the Lord made in terms of if, if Abraham was giving tithes to Melchizedek, that means Melchizedek was superior to Abraham. Well, if the Levitical priesthood was in the loins of Abraham, then Jesus is superior because he's after the order of Melchizedek to the Levitical priesthood. It's a very rabbinical kind of Jewish train of logic the Lord used, but that's, that's, he made that argument a lot through these first few chapters in Hebrews. So the rest of the book, like I said, it's almost like a practical application of, so what now? What do we do with all of that? And chapter 11 with the Hall of Faith is going to be an awesome, awesome study. So how do you take all of this and use it in the sanctification process? Because again, the whole book is built on these five warnings and the Lord with this fourth warning is showing something really important. So remember, all the way back in chapter two, it started the danger of drifting, the danger of hardening the heart in chapter three, the danger of failing to mature. We took that in two parts, starting in chapter five. And then now we're on the danger of willful sin and each one builds upon the other ultimately culminating with what the, the Lord says is happening today, frankly, in the age of apostasy. And how, how many people do you see in the church leaving the faith and clinging to doctrines of demons? A lot. You see a lot of people doing that today. And it's, it's a global issue. It's not just an issue where we are. But one of the things that you should recognize is over the last couple of years, as the Lord has been sifting his church, the remnant is almost getting brighter and bolder, and the others are almost getting darker and dimmer when you really look at it. And it's, it's amazing supernaturally what's happening, but God is uniting the remnant of his church all over the world right now. People that truly are wanting to chase after Jesus, to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride that we are not ashamed of what his word says to do. And so these warnings are for us. And we're gonna see that today because the warning starts out with, if we, it's to the believer. The warning is to the believer. And the warnings are there because remember, God is longing for a deep, deep relationship with his people. He's wanted a family, just like Chris talked about last week. From the beginning, God wanted a family and he created Adam and Eve. 
He wanted a family because the angels rebelled against him between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. He was creating a family in his image. Well, that fell apart also. And remember that there's a whole, if you look at the kind of the paradigm of the Bible, if he couldn't have all of humanity, then he was going to call out a nation. And that nation was founded through Abraham and Israel. Well, they rebelled against him. And so he's since called out a people for his name out of the Gentiles, the church, to be his people. And don't confuse that. Gentiles could be saved all throughout the Old Testament. It's just that God at that time was dealing with the earth through the nation of Israel, which is why when the church is raptured, the seven-year tribulation is the time of Jacob's trouble. He's once again dealing with the earth through the, the nation of Israel. So the whole, the whole goal for us is do not let your grip on Jesus slip. You've got to stay steadfast and cling to him because of these five warnings, there is a kingdom at hand. And if you can't feel how close that kingdom is, I would encourage you just to ask the Lord about it directly and let him show that to you. Because the question is, will you stay steadfast for him in this time when, when the furnace is being heated seven times more like Nebuchadnezzar did? And you're going to go into that fiery furnace, but you're not going to have a single hair singed, and you're going to watch your enemies be destroyed in the process. That's, that's kind of where we are right now. So back in Hebrews 6, the third warning was a pretty heavy, difficult warning regarding what happens to Christians who continue to live in sin. And here in Hebrews 10, we'll dive into the fourth warning of what occurs when the believer takes the next step of committing willful sin. And you might ask, well, what's the difference? Well, we'll, we'll dive into that, but think about premeditated versus something that is a moment of weakness kind of thing. Think about David and Bathsheba. We're going to talk about that some. He, he had that planned out for a long time. That's the difference. So in between the third and fourth warning, there are these three chapters that all emphasize the priestly work of Jesus and the answer to break free from continuing in sin to falling into willful sin. Remember that answer in 7, 8, and 9 is all about the priesthood of Jesus as our high priest. And what does that mean? So his priestly work avails for us all, for everybody, because of what he did. So starting on Hebrews 10, verse 19, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. So this word that starts out verse 19, the boldness, it really means freedom in speaking, unreservedness in speech, free and fearless confidence, cheerful courage, boldness, or assurance. So it's a boldness in Jesus that you are free and fearless unashamed, one might say, to proclaim the Lord and the King and what he's telling you to do. And the blood of Jesus allows us free and continual access into the Holy of Holies in heaven. Remember that it's in heaven, the true throne room of the universe, not the temporal one of the tabernacle that, that Moses and the children of Israel carried around in the wilderness. This is the true tabernacle the true throne room of the universe. And you get 24-7 access to what the high priest in the Old Testament had just once per year during the Day of Atonement. So remember that, that you have unfettered access. The Lord is always so anxious to hear from his people. And you have the opportunity, when you're going through something, 
you've got the opportunity to go into the throne room of the universe boldly running in there by the blood of Christ and taking anything you're facing to the feet of Jesus. It could be a relationship. It could be a job issue. It could be something in your marriage. It could be something with your children. It could be an attack from the enemy. It doesn't matter. The open house is available to all. So in verse 20, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. Now, we kind of touched on this, or Chris did a few weeks ago, about the model of the tabernacle and the temple and the veil being your heart. So think about that in relation to what verse 20 says. He consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. Okay, that's going to be really important here at the bottom of this slide in Ezekiel. So it's a new and living way. Our access is, this a, is a new and living way because it's not based on a dead, slaughtered animal, like in the Old Testament. Their access was based on an animal that did not want to go die willfully, that died under the commandment and not by his own volition. And it was a temporal blood covering that they had to go in and sprinkle Our access is because it's continual because the sacrifice for that access is living today and he's ruling and reigning. And so you can see the difference. And thus, because the sacrifice was accepted, he's living and reigning. It is in perpetuity that you have access to the throne room. And so there's a really neat relationship there that we have because of Jesus. It's based on living fellowship with the living king. And if that veil was torn, remember as he took his last breath, the veil was ripped in half. Or think about, as Chris so described a few weeks ago, the heart. Think about your heart, your old heart of stone being ripped open at that moment. And Ezekiel eleven nineteen, you actually see this twice in Ezekiel. But I will give them one heart and I will put a new spirit within you and I will take the stony heart out of their flesh and will give them a heart of flesh. See, nowhere in the Bible does God say he changes your heart. It's quite the opposite. He gives you a new one. And that is a radical transformation of being born again. He gives you a new heart. And because that veil is torn, and it's an open house, when you get a new heart, it's an open house because you then have direct connection with that new heart in the spirit, to the throne room of the universe. And so it's supernatural what happens. And you can also find that quote in Ezekiel 36, verse 26. So in verse 21 here in Hebrews 10, and having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So our high priest is over the house of God, not just the temporal tabernacle for the Israelites, like the Levitical priesthood. Remember, that high priest was just over the proceedings of this bloody temporal tabernacle that was for a nation. You had to be an Israelite to have access and to, not that you couldn't have access to God before, if you were a Gentile, but to participate in the tabernacle 
you had to be of the tribe of Levi. And so it was for a nation. Our God, our King reigns over a house that is for all in the throne room of the universe. And so when drawing near to God, you'll either come with a true heart or the flesh and worldliness. (laughs) Now think about this. It says in verse 22 there, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Okay, so of faith. And remember, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. But you can't come to the Lord with a heart of flesh because, and I actually used this example in Bible study on Friday, but think about the sun, the physical sun, not the son of God, but the sun in the center of, the, of, the, of our galaxy, if you were to get close enough to it, the closer you get, anything of this world and the flesh would melt away. Nothing would survive it. The same is true in your relationship with Jesus. The closer you get to him, you cannot hold on to anything of this world because the Lord in just his presence will melt that away. And that's why a lot of people, when they start that sanctification process, after a few months, start realizing, wow, I need to get rid of this. I can't hold on to this anymore. And when you're chasing after the Lord in that way, just his presence alone will melt the things of this world off of you. And it's, it is amazing when it happens, but that's, it's exactly the same with the sun in our galaxy. So the, the word here, when you draw near with a true heart of flesh or the flesh and the worldliness will melt away, the Greek in that phrase to open verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart, it's, now it's a present imperative tense in the Greek. Okay, what it basically means is a continual of drawing near. It's not something you do once and you never do again. It's something that you have to do daily and that's, that's why the, the Bible says from Acts 17, 11, to search the scriptures daily. You've got to daily draw near to God. Otherwise, you have the, the possibility of falling into these warnings that the book of Hebrews is talking about. You've got to ever draw closer to him. So the Greek word for a true, for a heart, a true heart, meaning that which has not only the name and resemblance but the real nature corresponding to the name. So in every respect corresponding to the idea signified by the name, real, true, or genuine. Think about it this way. It's a real, true, genuine heart that's responsive to the king. You can't fake your relationship with Jesus. You might be able to fake it to people around you, but you cannot fake it to him. And that's, that's a key here in the Greek with verse 22, a true heart. It's kind of like when you look at a lot of the kings in Israel, there were some kings that had a true heart for God and they tore down the high places. They did great works of righteousness for God, but they maybe had one thing they didn't, wouldn't let go of and the Lord would call them out on it. Well, he would call them out on it because they were coming to him with a true heart. Though there were others that even if they did something good, and it just kind of works-based, but they were so wicked everywhere else, the, the Lord would call them out in the reverse. So it's really interesting, actually, when you study all those kings of Israel to look at what God says about each one of them. There's, there's a deep application in each one of those. 
So there's only one way to have the true assurance of faith. So a true heart in full assurance of faith. And like I mentioned, that's Romans 10, 17. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's the only way to have the true assurance of faith is to get into the word of God because that's the only way to get faith. And faith has nothing to do with what you see. It's the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And so that's why the children of Israel failed right after they got through the Red Sea is they were building everything that they were doing off of what they saw. And that's why they started to fashion a golden calf two days later. They they didn't listen to the word of God. So the term sprinkled here in verse 22, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. It's it's almost like a Levitical imagery is what God is showing here. It's the same way a priest would be inducted into his office. He'd be sprinkled. So kind of that same thing. Think about when your heart is sprinkled from an evil conscience, it's almost like an induction into God's army, so to speak. You're being inducted into go out and to be a king and a priest for God. So renew yourself by the word. That's the key. And our bodies washed with pure water. Look at Romans 12 too. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And that's what it's about, being transformed by the renewing of your mind. Look at Psalms 51.10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. So renewal, this constant theme of renewal. Ephesians 4 and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. That, I want you to notice the connector there, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Notice the Holy Spirit really illuminated this a lot this week for me as I was studying this. Notice that a purified and glorious church is connected to an action of the husband. And Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for that. So by husbands, by you doing that, you're going to rightfully be leading your family and your spouse, your children, your job, etc. Everything falls into line and a church, an unashamed bride, a remnant that's glorious and without blemish is built off of the man, off of the husband. And not that women don't have a key part of that. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But I love that the Lord has a connector there to the husbands. That when the husbands fall in line under his authority and what he's called us to do, there's a, there's a cleansing within the church and this beautiful, beautiful body of Christ that he created is exactly how he designed it. And I love that. It's one of the things the Lord, I actually never made this connection until this week, but it's one of the things the Lord, when we were praying about New City before it ever started, 
one of the things that he told me very specifically was, Matt, I had to change the hearts and the minds of the men first. I had to get husbands and fathers and men to take up the mantle of chasing after Jesus the way that I designed them to, to lead their families. And it's, it's amazing how that's come to fruition. Okay, Titus 3, 1 through 2. Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work, to speak evil of no man. I won't ask how many uh, have a tendency to speak evil of, of people. To be no brawlers, but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. Titus 3, the next couple of verses here, continuing verse 3 and 4. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. And he did. Jesus appeared in the flesh. Not by works of righteousness, in verse 5, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. How? By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, that's, that's incredible. Remember, Jesus is made heir of all things. We are made co-heirs with him because of Jesus. And Titus 3 lays that out in such a beautiful way. So Hebrews 10 verse 23 here. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. For he is faithful that promised. So all of us that are walking with the Lord, we are admonished by God to hold fast without wavering. And that's, that's kind of a characteristic of what these warnings have been going through, not drifting, not letting your grip on Jesus slip. Don't waver. Don't waver back and forth. And so since Jesus is faithful that promised you all things, just a simple question. Why aren't you faithful that can inherit all things? And that's a question from the Lord because he is faithful in giving you everything you need to succeed in your walk with him. And so just ask him. Just be faithful in spending time with him. And part of that is, like most people that don't want to get saved, it's a flee from accountability. When you really dial it down into and peel back that onion in why someone rejects the Lord, it's a flee from accountability. They do not want to submit themselves to the feet of Jesus and admit they need a savior. So do not become a ship tossed about by a storm, but instead set the anchor of our soul. We did a whole message on from Hebrews a, a few months ago, Jesus, the anchor of our soul. He's the one that keeps you when the storm hits from being tossed about. And you can almost, if any of you have been on a ship that's been in a storm or very rocky, you know what it feels like to have vertigo or to be seasick in a way? You can kind of experience that in your own life if you don't have him as the anchor of your soul because you can get knocked around and it's almost like you're dizzy from all the attacks from the enemy of just tossing you about, bringing this into your marriage, bringing this against your kids, bringing this against your job, whatever it is, and you almost are 
dizzy in a sense of, where do I go? You're almost stumbling about. But the answer is the Lord. And not to let that ship, that storm, toss you around like an unanchored ship. Look at James 1, 5 through 8. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God that giveth to all men liberally. Now, God set that precedent back in Solomon's day. Remember Solomon, the Lord said, I'll give you anything you ask for. And because he didn't ask for riches or wealth or an expanse of the kingdom or anything, he asked for wisdom. God granted it to him liberally and then gave him everything else he didn't ask for. Now, he squandered it. Solomon's not viewed in a good light by the Lord himself in the New Testament. Remember, Jesus says Solomon in all of his wealth is not arrayed as beautiful as one of the flowers of the field. So Solomon totally blew it at the end of his life. He did three things that God said, do not do Do not for kings of Israel. Do not multiply wives, horses, or chariots. And he did all three. And he did them abundantly and really spit in the face of God by doing it. So he was not a successful model. How he started out was the right way. And I would encourage all of you, if you do need wisdom in an area, like James 1, 5 says, ask for it because God will give it to you liberally. But let him ask in faith, not wavering. So there it is, not wavering. Hold fast without wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And I don't know how many of you have ever experienced someone that's double-minded, that's a Christian or even not a Christian, but they are. They're very unstable. You kind of never know what decision they're going to make or if they're going to remember a decision they made before they're, they're being tossed about so much. There's almost like there's a lack of stability in their life, and that's exactly what James says. So in Hebrews 10, 24, let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. See, this is the design that God had for the church right here. It's his church and he set the guidelines. Our guide is to consider one another and by, and what does that mean? Consider one another. Well, here's a a simple way. I would encourage you, if you see a family that's not here on a Sunday, reach out to them. Consider them. Just reach out to them and, and recognize, hey, I noticed you guys weren't there. We missed you. That's all. It's not trying to call anyone out. It's just there's an air of welcoming when you do that, right? It's an air of true love. It's an air of genuinity that you really care about this family and these people and their kids. And, but con- to consider one another, to provoke, and by doing that, you will provoke unto love and good works because they will feel loved. Remember, love is, a, is an action. It's not an emotion. Love meets a need, and it pushes them on to furthering the kingdom of God. So we're to operate in love with one another. And like I mentioned, love is an action. It meets a need. Remember John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave. It's an action. It's not an emotion. You don't love a cheeseburger. You don't love a good steak. It's, you might like it. You might enjoy eating it, but you don't love it. Love is an action. 
The steak may love you because it meets a need, I guess, that you're lacking. Anyway, love meets a need. It, do, it does not give people what they want, and that's important. When you love your children, you don't give them what they want. You give them what they need. And, and all of you that are parents in this room know that feeling when you've got to correct a child or put them back in line or ground them or punish them, whatever. It's, it's lo- you're loving them through action, because as Chris would say, it's just called parenting. That's what Chris would say. It's just called parenting. The world did not want Jesus, but God gave him anyway. So think about that. God, even though the world rejected him, God did it anyway because it's what we needed. It's not what the world at that time wanted. And so when we operate in true love, it leads and causes others to press on to good works so think about that. Faith without works is dead. Remember, you've, you've all read that passage. So part of being good, having good works is loving one another, encouraging one another, coming alongside one another, and thus edifying the body. So in verse 25, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Okay, God's word is really clear here in verse 25. We are to assemble and congregate together as God's people, regardless of what someone may say, including the government. We are not to to be subservient to the government. When they're outside of God's rule and his law and what he commands us to do, you have no part of it. Now, believers in China, for example, they meet under the penalty of death. And what's amazing is I've, I've heard several testimonies of this. The believers in China, there was a missionary here that went over there and he was ministering to an underground church. Every church there is underground pretty much, the true church of Jesus. And it was a Saturday evening and they were meeting the next morning and he didn't know where they were meeting. And he asked the guy he was with from China, Hey, where are we meeting in the morning? It's like we're meeting here in about 12 hours. Where are we going? And he said, oh, none of us know. What we do is we all pray Saturday night, and when we wake up that morning, the Holy Spirit leads us where to meet. And the Holy Spirit will draw them together, and they move every week to go somewhere. Now, that is truly not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. That is trusting in God and walking out despite there may be an army of the, the military police in China killing them or taking them to prison afterwards, but they're doing it. And they're praying to God on where to congregate because it's in fellowship when we're together that you exhort and encourage one another to press on. You, you don't do it when you sit at home and watch online things for months and months on end like people did in 2020, right? That's you're, you're forsaking the gathering of yourselves together. And so the Holy Spirit's emphasizing, look at that, that our need for fellowship is going to exponentially increase as, quote, the day is approaching. Now, this is a reference to the end times and the day of the Lord. So anywhere in the Bible, if you look up the day, the day of the Lord, that day, look for those phrases. Go into Blue Letter Bible and just type those in and pull up every single verse that says that day, the day, the day of the Lord. And when you put them all on a sheet of paper and you read them all together, 
it'll make sense. But the day of the Lord, as you see that day approaching, you are to be in fellowship even more often. And that's, that's an amazing admonition from the Lord, that as we continue to see the stage of the end times being set, we must be together in fellowship and unity in God's word because that's how we won't go astray and we'll encourage one another. And I'm telling you, when you look from the last couple of years and God was sifting the church and shining a light on the church, if you didn't notice how much of the church is apostatizing, there is a lot of people turning away from the faith. And the time to lock arms with the remnant, it is now. Because it's encouraging, right, when you're in a war to be in a foxhole and to know that people are, are with you. It's not really encouraging if you're behind enemy lines and you're in the foxhole and all of a sudden you look back and, and you're alone. It's like everybody's fled, jump ship, run away. That's, uh, that's very discouraging. It's quite the opposite. So not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together. And part of that not forsaking it is teaching and learning more about prophecy. Because the one of the key things the church has been missing for decades, it's not just one church, I mean the global church when I say the church, is the teaching of prophecy because if I'm totally convinced, if Christians realized that you have more to look forward to prophetically in the word of God than any other generation that's ever lived on earth, you would live with a sense of urgency for Jesus right now. And that is the truth. There is, you have more to look forward to. There is more written in the Bible about the days and years ahead of us right now than any other period of time in the history of the world. There is more written. That's because we have so much more revelation, so much more knowledge and understanding from the word of God. The fact that we can study the entire book of Daniel and have complete understanding of it tells you we are in the end times. God sealed that book until the end in chapter 12. So the fact that the Holy Spirit has illuminated it and given his people total understanding of it tells you that alone tells you we're in the end times. But when you couple that with the book of Revelation, First and Second Thessalonians, all the minor prophets, the fact that you have all of it that you can cohesively put together to get a firm view of what's ahead for us as God's people, it's amazing, and it should encourage you to press on. This not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together, it's also a personal call to the individual, not just the church, not just congregations. You know, you as an individual are not to forsake the gathering in fellowship with the brethren. And if you don't have a drive and a passion to be with God's people, it's a symptom of a deeper issue. You need to understand that God designed us to be a family, brothers and sisters in Christ. We're all a family. And really, there's nothing more that I love than being with my family. And it's, I love being here. I've missed you guys when I was gone for a few weeks. It was much needed rest. And I, and I heard a lot of amazing things from the Lord that I can't wait to share. But I missed you all deeply. I missed you all deeply. So my encouragement to all of you is to prioritize your time with the church and God's people. 
because it's vital to the health, stability, and witness of the church. If God's people don't want to be with one another, why does a non-believer? You know, just think about that. And so it encourages, when there's people gathering together under the word of God, it makes people that don't know him go, what do you guys know that I don't know? There's something there that's encouraging you to do this. So we need to prioritize that. We do. So non-believers are at least interested in what's going on here, in studying the word of God. So now we're going to dive deep into this fourth warning, the danger of willful, willful sin. So this warning, it starts in verse 26 here. It's from the Lord. It's got a heightened intensity with, frankly, a devastating outcome. And so once you are endowed with the word of God, you do have a responsibility. Look at Luke 12, verse 48. But he that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes. Okay, God is saying there, if you were ignorant of a sin and you commit it, the correction is softer. For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall much be much required. How many of you have heard Spider-Man paraphrase that? Right, they take the, <laughs> the Spider-Man has taken that phrase out of Luke 12, 48, and I think it was Uncle Ben, right? Of whom much responsibility is given, much, or much power is given, much responsibility is I, I'm, I'm messing it up. I can memorize it out of the Bible, not out of a movie, I guess. So, but that's where they get this idea. Unto whomsoever much is given of him shall be much required. And to whom men have committed much of him, they will ask the more. So when God gives you something out of the word, he's wanting to see what are you going to do with this? How will you use this? Will you take this and chase after me deeper and faster and harder and walk bolder with me? Or do you set it aside? Because if you choose the first, he gives you even more out of it. If you choose the latter, you will start to plateau. And that's, that's a principle out of God's word. So you have a responsibility to your king, your spouse, your family, your friends, the closer you get in walking with the Lord, you have a higher level of responsibility. And think about, again, what happens naturally as you draw close to the sun. It melts away everything of this world. So in verse 26 here, for if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. So if we sin willfully, remember, the entire book's written to us, the believers. So the we is us. This is to us. The opening phrase in the Greek, it's a present tense circumstantial participle. That's a real fancy phrase to mean a simply a continuing action. That's what it means. It's something that is continuing. It's not something you do once. It's something that you continue to per, in perpetuity to commit. So the Holy Spirit is dealing here with sin that's habitually committed. Think about the sin that is in that one, that one room or closet you don't want the Holy Spirit to walk into. It's that one. The one that is not, it's not a sin committed in a weak moment or out of ignorance, but committed deliberately and premeditated. And, that, and one of the examples I was thinking of when I was writing this was David and Bathsheba. Do not take that story as if David didn't know her. 
when you do the study, Bathsheba was her, I think it was her great-grandfather or grandfather, one of them, was very involved in the court of David. David knew her, and it was a long process to get there. But he did it deliberately, and then he committed premeditated murder to her husband because he wanted to cover up the crime. And so he committed a lot of willful sin in doing that. That's the kind of sin the Lord's dealing with here. These believers have received the knowledge of the truth. In the Greek, it's a precise and correct knowledge. Okay, that's what it means. Not a fuzzy knowledge, not a gray knowledge, but a knowledge that's precise and correct. So look at the verse again. If we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. So once you receive the truth, if you still insist upon returning to willful sin, it puts a light on the severity of your rebellion against God. And make no mistake, it is rebellion. That's what it is. Because you know better and yet you run to it. So Jesus' sacrifice was one time for all sins and it will never happen again. We've covered that a lot. But the phrase at the end here, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, it's like having no sacrifice for certain sins in the Old Testament. There were three sins in the Old Testament there was no sacrifice to cover. Adultery, murder, and blasphemy. All of those sins were punishable by death. There was never a, hey, if you take a he-goat that was born on a Tuesday and you go do this, you'll be okay. That was not there. It was, you're executed. That's what it was. And so that's all in Numbers 15, for example, if you want to dig that out. But if you willfully participate in deliberate sin, Jesus died to pay for that sin. He did sacrifice for it, but he's paid that price and you've forsaken his death. He's not going to die again. Thus, there remains no more sacrifice for that. Okay, do you see the logic? Again, it's kind of a rabbinical train of thought by the Lord here, but that's what it means. Okay, these sins carry with them the cost of separation. That's what you need to get out of this, one of the keys. In Hebrews 10, 29, we will see that these willful sins involve a rejection of three things, the work of each member of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So for this type of sin, there's nothing further God can sacrifice, and thus the individual is subject to judgment. That's the logic that the Lord is going down at the end of chapter 10 here. So the judgment unfolds in three aspects, physical ramifications in verses 28 and 29. For the believers in this time, there was a ramification of the judgment forthcoming in 70 AD when Rome destroyed the temple, and that's in verses 25 and 27. This also comes with the loss of rewards in the kingdom age and in the new Jerusalem, that new city that we all should be looking toward in verses 35 and 36. So keep this in mind. All sins are forgivable, but they still carry ramifications that ripple into eternity. And God's plea to all of us is to not let that ripple any further. I mean, think about simply, there's a lot of, we talked about this a lot in Bible study on Friday. There's a lot of sins you can commit as a father, for example, as the head of your household, that yes, the Lord can forgive it and wipe that away, 
but there's still ramifications on your family. And so just think about that. In verse 26, for if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. In verse 27, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, this sounds very Old Testament, which shall devour the adversaries. So one committing willful sin may be looking for an additional sacrifice, but instead will find fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. You do not want to be an adversary of God. There, there's a lot of globalists out there wanting to call Jesus out onto the battlefield right now, and they will not like the outcome. Because once he acts and steps on that battlefield, there's very little you can do to return from that. You do not want to be an adversary of the king. So I don't think many want to see what it really looks like to call and be an adversary of Jesus. Think about Korah, Korah's rebellion in number 16. Remember, he rebelled against the anointing of Moses and Aaron. And as a result, God opened the earth and literally swallowed he and his entire family. Now, he was a saved man. Every person that left Egypt from the Israelites was saved. That's what Deuteronomy calls out. So God had a judgment on him that was not a loss of salvation. It was, he was ineffective and rebelling against the king in the kingdom. And so God had no choice but to take him out. So your salvation's not at stake here, but your effectiveness for the kingdom is absolutely at stake. And that is the way the enemy attacks today. Remember, the enemy wants to steal, kill, and destroy. That, and it's in that order. So what he has to do first is steal your effectiveness for the kingdom. Then he can kill you and destroy your witness and your family and everything else. That's what he wants to do. He does not want to just kind of keep you aside in a corner and make you ineffective. No, he wants to get you there, isolated, and then kill you. That's his goal. We have an enemy that wants our lives. And Christians need to wake up and recognize that we are fighting against an enemy that is brutal and has no mercy. And once you recognize that, you will then look at the armor of God from Ephesians 6 in a whole new light on daily standing up and putting that on. So in verse 28, he that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment, in verse 29, suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. Let that just sink in for a moment. Okay, because if the people that went against the law of Moses were worthy of death by two or three witnesses, how much more worthy are we if you trodden underfoot the living, ruling Son of God? Just think about that. You're basically, when you commit willful sin, you're taking the sacrifice of Jesus and walking all over it because you're just basically saying, I don't care about that. I'm going to do this anyway. I know you died for me. I know you gave me authority to get out from under this, but I'm trampling on it anyway, back and forth. So when he, he's knowingly trampling on what the Son of God did for all of us, 
when you commit willful sin. So the blood of Jesus, it not only justifies us, but look in that passage in verse 29, it's what continually sanctifies us. And that's an important differentiation. Remember, the sanctification process we're all on. 2 Peter 2.21, for it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. And that's exactly what the Lord said in Luke 12, right? If it was, it was better, you got a lesser punishment when you did something out of ignorance. So in verse 30, Hebrews 10, verse 30, for we know him that hath said, vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. You know, oftentimes we read this whole thing about vengeance is mine from Romans 12, 19 from the Lord. And I, I immediately go and think about God's enemies, the, the coming Antichrist, these world leader globalists that want to murder your children, you know, all these different things. You think about true enemies of God. You don't really often associate that with his people that are in rebellion, but that's what God is saying here. Vengeance belongs to me, to me. In this context right here of this warning, he has vengeance against those that rebel and trample all over his sacrifice. He's turning that to his own people. So we must also rightly divide the word of God. This warning is not about wrath. Okay, you've got to rightly divide. Romans 12, 29, dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, for God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. So the wrath, remember, you're not appointed to wrath. And what happens starting in Revelation chapter six, even those people on the earth during the tribulation admit who can withstand the wrath of the lamb. Okay, verse 31, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So when his people commit willful sin, it's almost as if they're saying he'll not intervene. You know, think about the, the spirit or the, the thought behind that. He will not intervene. I'm going to do this anyway, and God's not going to care or intervene. It's the same issue discussed in 2 Peter about the end times. 2 Peter 3, verses 3 through 4. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. See, the people that scoff at the end times have that same attitude. It doesn't matter what God's word says. He's not going to intervene in the affairs of man. That's their thought and their logic in saying that. Okay, Deuteronomy 32, verse 36, for the Lord shall judge his people and repent himself for his servants when he seeth that their power is gone and there is none shut up or left. Look at 2 Corinthians 5, 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body According to that, he hath done. Whether it be good or bad, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your conscience. Remember that you've got an appointment with the judgment seat of Christ that everything you did in this life is put to the test by fire in 1 Corinthians 10, 11 through 15, I think. Hebrews 10, verse 32, but call to remembrance 
the former days in which after ye were illuminated, ye endured a great flight of affliction, partly whilst ye were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly whilst ye became companions of them that were so used. One effective way to bring someone back into a deep relationship with Jesus is to remind them of a time when they had one. And that's what God is saying here. But call to remembrance the former days, the former days when someone loved the Lord and was chasing after them, after him in a bold way. When you can have them remember that and remember how great it was to be abiding in Christ, a lot of times you can win back a brother or a sister. It's a biblical way to help combat apostasy. And the Greek word for afflictions here, in verse 33, it's the same as sufferings. And it's the same Greek word in 1 Peter 4.13, but rejoice in much, inasmuch as ye have partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. So when you're a partaker with Christ, you are joyful in those sufferings and afflictions. The elders which are among you in 1 Peter 5.1, I exhort who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Okay, in verse 34, Hebrews 10, for ye had compassion of me and my bonds and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. Boy, that's a... That's a, that's a strong promise. Verse 35, cast not away therefore your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. See, when you are confident in the word of God and in your security with him and your relationship with him, no matter what the enemy throws at you, you have confidence and great recompense of the reward in the kingdom and thereafter in the new heaven and the new earth. For ye have need of patience that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. Remember, Abraham walked, we learn this actually in the New Testament, Abraham spent his life walking around looking for a city whose maker was God. He was looking for the new city, the new Jerusalem, and he never saw it, but he did it with patience, and he walked continually with the Lord, patiently looking for that. The reward is enduring for all eternity and not just this life. It's amazing how many uh, believers get so distracted by the things around them in this world that something that there's not a single person in this room that a hundred years from now, that will matter. Not one. There's not one of us in here. And yet, it's one of the most distracting things to your walk is what's going on in the world. You need to look past that to eternity because that is where your inheritance and your treasure lies with the Lord. So remember, in the Bible, there are crowns and rewards for the overcomer in the word of God. We've gone through these a lot in here, and there's the scripture references if you want to dig this out. But the crown of life, crown of righteousness, crown of glory, crown imperishable, and crown of rejoicing, each one is linked to something specific you do in this life right now. When you go to Revelation, there's eight promises to the overcomer, to eat of the tree of life, not her the second death, hidden manna, white stone with a new name, the power over the nations, the white raiment, a pillar and a new name, sit with Christ on his throne, that's incredible, 
and to inherit all things. That's what God wants us focused on, the things of eternity with his kingdom. So and there's the references if you want to go through those as well. So how are you an overcomer? Well, it's simple. You remain loyal to God, Revelation 2, 1 through 3, not to lose your first love. You overcome trials and tribulations while remaining faithful in Revelation 2, 8 through 11. You're spiritually zealous for the Lord in Revelation 2, 19. You do not deny Jesus in Revelation 3, 8 and 10. Not defile your garments in Revelation 3, 4. And you keep the word of his patience in Revelation 3, verse 10. It's the last couple of verses here. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come. That's a promise. Every single prophecy of Jesus arriving the first time was fulfilled literally to the day. And every single one of them, there are eight. For every one of those, there are at least eight of his second arrival. And it will be fulfilled literally and to the day. He will come and he will not tarry. And the question is for every one of us in this room as a part of his church, what do you do between now and when you go home? Because that's all that matters. When you blink through this life, all that matters is what you do for the kingdom. So how close are we to going to home in the rapture? You know, I think, in case you didn't know, I think about this a lot, <laughs> a lot. I look, at, I look at headlines and look at, I, I have looked all over the Bible looking at things. And if you want to get into a deep three or four hour discussion, let's go grab breakfast sometime and we'll talk because there, there is a rise, what you are seeing right now, no other generation ever to live on earth had the privilege to see what you are seeing. And think about that as a privilege, not something to be fearful of. And so when you see the call for global governance, when you see world leaders coalescing together, trying to form global governance through a mantra, the same mantra they all use, build back better. Okay, where do they get that from? Look into the World Economic Forum. Look into the, look into the, the United Nations. Look into these things. These are not entities and corporations and organizations that have your best interest in mind. They are organizations that want to usher in a kingdom without the king when you really dig into it. But when you look at the rise of a one-world leader, they, the world's been calling for it for decades, but you saw it out openly starting in 2020. They want complete control of the financial system. There's literally nothing that you will be able to do that they don't have control over when the tribulation comes in. But when you see the stage being set of that system for instantaneous transactions to be approved or denied, based on something you take or your proclamation of who you are in Jesus, you know it is getting close. Do not put your head in the sand and think that this is all just randomness that's gonna go away. This is the stage setting. You are seeing the stage setting for the beast system to be put in place. Wars, famines, pestilences, hyperinflation, scarcity, all of that is talked about in Revelation 6. So when you see them calling for it now, just think about that. Take it to heart. The call for a mark to be implemented, to be used as a track and trace system on your children, on you, it's not, it's not an accident. 
all of this, the word of God has laid out deliberately for you and I to look at it and go, I know exactly where this is going. And so I need to get serious about my walk with the king. That's where your, your mind should be. Because if we're seeing that as, as my, uh, one of my dear spiritual uh, forefathers, I guess Chuck Missler would say, when you see Christmas decorations in the store, you know Thanksgiving's around the corner. And, that's, and he used that all the time. It's a great analogy because you walk around and you'll, at Thanksgiving you'll see Christmas trees and all this stuff, so you've got to be close to Turkey Day. But when you look at this, think about that stage setting now. It is accelerated. And how many of you think, I started noticing this, my wife and I were talking about this, I feel like time is going faster this year. And she stumbled across an article that it actually is. The world the, the rotation of the earth has sped up and they are thinking they have to reset the nuclear atomic clocks as a result because time is actually going faster. Your clock right now, your iPhone's probably off by about one and a half milliseconds right now. And I know it's not a lot, but you can feel the, the difference as God is speeding things up. So the last couple of verses here, Hebrews 10, 38, now the just shall live by faith but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. This is a quote from Habakkuk 2 verse 4. Behold, his soul, which is lifted up, is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. That's how you're saved. So it's expanded on. That phrase is taken and expanded on in three books in the New Testament. Who are the just is the whole book of Romans. And that verse is quoted in all three. And there's the reference for you in your notes. The book of Romans, Romans 1.17 is the quote. How shall the just live is Galatians. Galatians 3.11 is the quote. And what does it mean to live by faith? That's what the whole book of Hebrews is about. And the verse is quoted here in Hebrews 10, uh, verse 38. I've got a typo there. It's verse 38, not 39. God delights in you pressing on in Christ and not drawing back. So the last verse, but we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving, not of the spirit, of the soul. And I hope that all of you listened to, to Chris's first message about the difference between the spirit and the soul. And we've talked about it a lot in here. These warnings are for the believer, so your spirit no longer needs saving. You've been justified. But it's to the saving of your mind, will, and emotions, your body, and how you partake with Christ in this life right now. So are you of them that who hold fast with patient endurance? That's a call. Or are you of them who return and draw back unto perdition? Look at Luke 9, 62. And Jesus said unto him, no man having his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. You see this with Lot's wife when they're delivered from Sodom and Gomorrah she was looking back and what did she do? She turned to a pillar of salt. Her walk stalled at that moment and didn't go on any further because she was looking back. She wanted to return. She didn't just look back out of, let me see this destruction of what's going on. She looked back longingly. She looked back wanting to return to what God had delivered them out of. And because of that, she was ineffective for the kingdom and her walk stopped right there. That's what this warning is all about, the willful sin. When you commit it, your walk will stop. 
and that's the plea to God. It's a walk. Remember, it's a walk. It's not a sprint. And so all of us, we can't grow weary, but we've got to stay strong in Jesus. Okay, going back, so the call to action, Hebrews 9.28. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. That is what we should be doing right now. Again, when I went through that list, and that was a very brief list, we could have expanded that for an entire message plus some. In fact, one of the things the Lord's really been talking to me a lot about lately is after, what are we gonna do after we finish the book of Hebrews? And last time after we finished Revelation, we did that two-week kind of special on let there be war. I think what he's telling me to do is to write a couple of messages on where are we prophetically right now and just looking at, so those things that we laid out just very briefly, diving deep into those against the backdrop of scripture so you all can see how to view headlines today because you can watch the pages of the Bible just come alive if you're, if you're aware of it and you're paying attention to it. Do this, make this a habit too. Look at the Jerusalem Post once a week and just look through those headlines because everything where we're heading is centered around Israel. So when you see them getting ready to build the next temple, when you see them trying to raise the red heifer, when you see them, all these things, that has to happen during the tribulation. And when they are on the very cusp of bringing that in, you know that we are close. We might actually get to see the temple be built. The Lord doesn't say we won't. You might see that. And it's amazing when you're watching the call to watch. It's to be a watchman. And so what did, they, what did the watchman do in the Old Testament? They would stand up on the tallest part of the castle and they would look out and warn the people because you could see an attack coming. And that's what we are to be right now, a watchman. We are to be watching prophetically what is going on in the world and warning those around us you better get to know Jesus. You've got to know the Lord. And if you want me to show you how to get to know him, let me show you all of these prophecies that have come to pass and all of these that are still yet to happen. It's irrefutable. At that point, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting him. So there's a crown for watching from 2 Timothy 4.8. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. That's one of the crowns, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me it that day and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. If you love the appearing of Jesus, there's a crown laid up for you. And I'm convinced that all five of those listed in the Bible, it is not an all-inclusive list. It's to give you a hint that there are, there's probably an infinite number of crowns. Now, how do you wear more than one crown? Well, you don't in three and a half dimensions. You do when you're in multi-dimensions and you're in an infinite space with Jesus because there's a lot of space there. <laughs> That's how the Lord, when Jesus returns, how he's wearing a, a head of, on his head were many crowns. These are, this is a supernatural thing that is more real than where we are right now. In the garden, they were to watch. In Matthew 26, 38, remember in the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus left and he came back, then saith unto them, my soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death tarry ye here and watch with me. And he cometh unto the disciples and findeth them asleep. You know, is that how God is going to find you? When he, 
when he blows that trumpet and rips open the space-time continuum and brings us home in the rapture, will he find you asleep in Matthew 26, verse 40? And saith unto Peter, could you not even watch with me for one hour? I mean, guys, our lives are short, very short. Stay strong and walk with him. Watch and pray in Matthew 26, 41, that you enter into, not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is very weak. Be watchful. Matthew 24, 42 through 43, watch therefore. Matthew 25, 13, watch therefore. Mark 13, 33, take ye heed, watch and pray. Luke 21, 36, watch ye therefore and pray always. Do you get the idea that Jesus wants you alert and alive and aware of what is going on in our world? He does. He absolutely wants you to watch. And so be watchful, Mark 13, 37. I think that's why the Lord is really laying on my heart that after Hebrews, we'll do as many as it takes, maybe two weeks, maybe three weeks, a study on prophecy, a deep study on prophetically and where we are. But you've got to rightly divide the return of Jesus to gather his church and his return to earth and power. That's the difference. When you rightly divide those, the second coming of Christ that we call is not him stepping foot on the earth. It's to take us home in the rapture. In the air is where we meet him, not on the earth. So two different events totally. You've got to rightly divide those. So build your faith to be watchful. We've talked a lot about that. You've got to do it daily in Acts 17, 11. And do, do not be negligent, but run that she may obtain in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 25. And, you know, if you guys, I'm going to share this real quick and we'll wrap up in prayer. Some of you, some of you may know, but Mike had a, Mike's back here. He had a, he was bit by a, a copperhead. Um, probably, I don't know, a month or two ago now. It's been a, a little while. I hope you don't mind me sharing this, Mike. <laughs> I did ask you about a month ago if I could share this and you said, thumbs up. I've just waited until now. But, you know, when you're abiding with Jesus and you go to the throne room in prayer, God is so faithful to answer prayers and he is so faithful to act on, on behalf of his people and his remnant. And I'm just sharing this as encouragement for all of you because I saw this. When he was bit by a copperhead, this is what God showed me. Because I, I immediately went to prayer. I was at work and I just, I stopped and was praying. And Mike was being rushed to the hospital when we got the word. And as I was praying, I, I saw Jesus standing over Mike. And I'm reading from my notes here. I had to write this down. And Jesus reached inside of his body into the bloodstream. And he grabbed one of the poison molecules in his bloodstream. And Jesus started pulling it out of his body. And as he was pulling it, the other molecules were just racing and attaching to it, like one after one. And it was coming out in a string. And Jesus was pulling it up and it got to the point that he couldn't get it anymore. It's like they were connecting by magnets and he couldn't get it anymore because the head was stuck. And so Jesus took his other hand and went down and he took it by the neck and just pulled it out like that by the head. And he, and he held it up over his head and he stretched it out and he just snapped it in two and it just was gone. And I saw that and I, I sent it to Debbie. Debbie was at the hospital with Mike and 
he was healing him in a radical way. And <laughs> it was amazing through that. There's a whole testimony maybe Mike can share at some point. But because of that prayer and what, what we saw, it caused them to do certain things in the hospital differently. And I share that with all of you because the supernatural, that veil between reality and this, what we call the supernatural is getting thinner and thinner and thinner. And it's almost about to just rip open and we're gonna go home. And when you see the king intervening on behalf of his people openly and for you when you're in the throne room of the universe, it is powerful. And it should encourage you to continue to press on as his people and to get closer to him. So take prayer seriously. And that's one of the things about provoking one another and encouraging one another. When things like that happen and we go to prayer, Jesus moves in a mighty way. And you do all of that through building your faith from Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So if you're watching this online anywhere, if you're in this room and you don't know the king, I would encourage you, Romans 10, 9, to not wait any longer. He's the only king whom death bows to, the only one. He's the only one that would die and go to the grave knowing that death is going to bow at my feet and I'm gonna exit this grave. And you, when you get born again, have that same confidence that when you go to the grave, you will exit because he did. And how do you get saved? It's very simple, Romans 10, 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And if you did that today, if you're watching this sometime later and did that, send us an email. Send us an email and let us know. We'd love to hear the praise reports of people coming to know the Lord. So with that, I'll close us in prayer. Lord, I thank you so much for this time together. God, I thank you for who you are. God, I thank you that you are a king that is active in the lives of your people and that you move mountains to rush to fight for us. We thank you for healing Mike in the hospital. We thank you that we could lift our prayers to heaven and that you would act on our behalf because we have total confidence from 1 John 2, 28 and 1 John 5 and many other passages, Lord, that you have confident, we have confidence that you will act when your people cry out to you. And Lord, I pray that you would deepen and strengthen the relationship of every person in this room, of every person that's watching this somewhere, of everyone that finds this video later. I pray that your spirit would move in their lives and that you would activate a new sense of urgency for them to draw closer to you as we see the day approaching. We thank you for it, God, and we give you praise and glory in advance for it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.